We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like Kobe in fourth this is the Dane Moore NBA podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcasts. Happy Memorial Day. It is Sunday evening as we sit down to record tonight's episode of the show, which means in the context of the NBA playoffs, uh, we're in round one, about three or four games into each of the series. A couple days ago, Britt and I talked about five of those first round series. So tonight we're going to hit on the other three. My guest is Glenn Willis. Uh, Glenn, we are going to hit on Hawks-Knicks, Grizzlies-Jazz, and Sixers-Wizards. Glenn, you cover the Atlanta Hawks for Peachtree Hoops, so obviously that's where that's why I wanted to have you on. That's where I want to start uh, this conversation. I think it's been one of the most uh, one of the most fun series of of this playoffs. You texted me on on Friday night because uh, we knew we were getting together to do this. You said, "Dane, the Knicks are done," <laughs> and I didn't respond to your text because I was watching the game on delay. Um, but now game three plays out and game four plays out. They killed the Knicks tonight. What was the final was 113 to 96. It's now a 3-1 series lead. I mean, you're right. Like the Knicks, the Knicks seem done. Why, why Glenn are, why are the Knicks done in this series after four games? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, that was mostly predicated on when I saw Nate McMillan in the second quarter of game three, Switched DeAndre Hunter from being the primary Julius Strangle defender to defending Derrick Rose. Um, that said to me that they can now kind of focus um, their best perimeter and point of attack de- defense on Rose, the guy who had actually been problematic and who was playing really well and driving a lot of uh, a lot of their offense. And when you kind of you know look at that next roster and look at their rotation, for me. Uh, I just didn't see another offensive solution that Tibbs could find there. I, I, I thought, you know, RJ Barrett could get more opportunity and was probably deserving of that, depending on how they could um, maybe work some mis- certain matchups or mismatches for him and things like that. Um, but I didn't think that was going to kind of lift them all the way up to where I thought they needed to be. Right. So, you know, I, for me, I, I think that, you know, as good as the Knicks were all year long, especially on defense, and the way that they found enough in the regular season offensively to kind of post the record that they did, when you get into a, you know, kind of a, a playoff context, 
and the other team is planning for you for you know typically multiple weeks <laughs> worth of games and feedback loops and all that sort of stuff you got to have sort of options on alternatives and so you know we i think it's kind of a cliche at this point that the Knicks basically were built for the regular season i think we could say now and, and that is not, that's not to single uh, single out any of their players as being um kind of regular season players you know but just the their the composite of their full roster i just think there's not enough secondary tertiary you know offensive options to kind of tweak things and go look for more offensive juice they just they they just don't have it in my view Right. Well, I think we would have said that, you know, before the series even started, right. that if the Knicks are going to win this series, it's going to be because you get a lot offensively from Derrick Rose and Julius Randle. And I, I'm assuming Tibbs in his wildest dreams didn't expect Randle to, you know, to do what he's done. He's, I mean, kind of the counting stats look decent. He's averaging 17 and 11 shooting 33% from three, but 24% from two, true shooting percentage of 40%. I mean, he's been, he's been awful. And, and when you, when you are a team that has been like the Knicks, when they were good in the regular season, it's because Randall's scoring for them. And it starts with him scoring, which opens up his playmaking, kind of gets to the nail and is able to distribute. And then that's, that's what kind of engages the other kind of role players, the Reggie Bullocks, the Nerlens Noel on a on a lob, something like that. And outside of that, really, their only extra juice is Derrick Rose. Now, Rose is for sure giving him juice on his end of it, but when when Randall when Randall isn't going, that their whole the whole idea of their identity, the whole idea of why the Knicks works, the idea that they were a good regular season team kind of falls apart because that is Julius Randle was their foundation. So in, in your view, what have the, what have the Hawks done to, to take Julius Randle away? Well, I mean, if, if any of your listeners watch Hawks, Knicks in a regular season, Knicks swept all three games and Randle just I mean, posted bonkers numbers against them. And he was a, a ridiculous shot maker. Um, it, it wasn't, a super outlier because he shot the ball well all year long you know right right um but what's been different basically is is um with hunter on him you know hunter is kind of crowding him and taking away his space and and drano likes to kind of dribble into some space to work with and hunter's just taking that away now gallo has been kind of the second um defender um from a number of minutes he's kind of taking up that responsibility and he's done something different. He's dropped about eight to ten feet off of him, and has just decided that Randall's not going to dribble past him, which is kind of funny. I didn't see that coming. I'll be really honest with that. I consider myself a smart-ish basketball person. I didn't expect that. I didn't anticipate that at all. Um, but it's it's worked quite well. Um, and I mean, they traded him. They, Gallo treats him like he's Giannis. Exactly. Which which I think again, if we're having this conversation a week ago, and we're we're like. Oh well, Gallo's gonna play eight feet off of Julius Randle. Julius Randle, who was one of the best shot makers in the se- of the whole season this year in the NBA, right. you would just think you'd think he'd be having thirty a game because he could just pull up. He'd pull up over and over again. But I mean, Randle, not once in any of the four games has he got going on that. He doesn't have he doesn't have the confidence in it. And really, like, it, I, I'm almost surprised he hasn't tried. 
just shoot his way out of it because it's not there. It's not there when he's trying to go north and south because it's not just Gallo walling up. They're bringing that second body over there. Even like the when John Collins got like wrecked in the face today, that was one of the times where Randall actually got downhill, right? right. And he and he got past Gallo, but there's that second body there, and it looks like Randall's best drive of the day. And then sure enough, you know it's an offensive foul. So they have just they've just totally loaded up on him and, and treated him like Giannis. And for some reason, he's had the same – his jumper's been as bad as Giannis's. It's, I, I, I did not see the narrative of Gallo's defense being one of the reasons why the, why the Hawks are, you know, killing it in this series. Yeah, Gallo was, had a rough offensive first game, and that's where it seems like, what, 90 95% of his value comes kind of across the season. Right. But he still had a good game because of what he did uh, defensively on Randall. And, I mean, part of that, he talked about them walling up. If you, if you kind of pause the game on any Knicks offensive possessions when Randall's on the court, you'll see at least kind of four guys touching the paint. And sometimes a mm-hmm. fifth guy, depending on where the ball is. You know, I, I don't personally want to put all that on Randall. He's been bad at, you know, what's going on with him. Is it playoff pressure? Is first playoff experience? Is it, you know, who knows what's, I, I don't want to try to kind of guess at that. But one of the parts of that that's made Julius Randle's job harder is that the Hawks don't really worry about any kind of secondary creators on the weak side. If the ball swings over to whether it's Bullock or Burks or, or whoever, um, they know that you know if we just chase them off the three-point line, they, they don't have great dribble skills. They're not going to really kind of create. They may step in for a shot, a two, you know, a 17-footer or whatever, a value of two points and stuff. But they can they can load up and they can kind of show a lot of bodies to the ball handler, whoever that is, and not really worry about pulling it on the weak side because there's just not a lot of careers. I mean, our, probably year three or year four for RJ Barrett, he's probably developing into yeah for sure a a little unfair to expect that i think right now with him even though he's had some flashes where he's been a tough you know thing for them to deal with but they just there's nobody on that weak side it's it's i think i think sometimes in basketball conversation we talk about just put a great shooter in the weak side corner and that creates your spacing Uh, but honestly in a playoff context more it's somewhat in the regular season but especially the playoff context if you know that all you gotta do is hustle out to that shooter and force him to put the ball on the court and chase him out of the corner. If that guy doesn't really have kind of dribble, you know, slash creation skills, you you're going to live with kind of whatever happens when that type of person puts the ball on the floor. And Alex Burks fits that description, I think. And so does um, Reggie Bullock. They're living Bullock, with right. living with that. So, um, you know, you know, where else does the coaching staff you know, turn and, and the Hawks are kind of, become even a little bit more precise every game with kind of how they're doing that. Um, it's, it was funny in game, I think it was game two. and No, I guess it was game one where Rose had the floater that tie, tied the game before. Right before the Trey's floater. Yeah. Even though Rose made the floater and tied the game, I thought it was one of the Hawks' best defensive possessions of that game because they chased like three guys off the three-point line and forced them to dribble the ball you know, inside, and that's probably been their best phase of defensive play across the whole series is how they've been pulling in, but then really working hard to close out and chase guys off the three-point line. That, in my mind, I wrote about it, but I said, you know, just forcing the two-pointer that resulted in a tie game when the Hawks went down to trade the game winner, there's so much less pressure 
when you're dealing with a tie game where if you miss, you're going to overtime instead of being down one. And so how hard they worked on defense, despite there was a made basket by the other team, was, was, was huge. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, where the Knicks go from here, I, you know, when they look at their roster for next year, I think they definitely need to look at more creation. And, and you know, Dane, you and I have always talked a lot about how valuable it is to throw your team into a playoff environment because it gives you a really valuable feedback loop on what you actually have and what you don't have. And, you know, me trying – you know me as a really optimistic person, and I, I kind of root for everyone unless a person gives me a really great reason not to. And I think this is a feedback loop for the Knicks that they need more creators on the wing. I think RJ is on that path, but they need one or two, if not three more, if they want to kind of get the team to a point where they are set up to be able to kind of handle what the things that they're going to counter in the postseason. I think that's the big takeaway for me. Yeah, which – and then that's a whole other sort of topic. You start questioning the whole kind of design of the roster. It's like, you know, you feel like not only could they use a creator, they could use, they could probably use another just catch and shoot three point guy, you know, in addition to Bullock out there or whatever it might be. And, and so long as they have one of their five positions being taken up by Nerlens Noel and Taj Gibson, who have been very good for them defensively, like those guys aren't providing you anything there. So right. in ways like, I don't knowing Tibbs a little bit. I don't think Tibbs will do that. This, but like an option would be to sh- shift Randall up to the five, and now you can put you know four shooter slash 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 slashers around him, and you know uh, at least unlock a little bit more opportunity there. Yet they're so their defense is what makes them so special, and what Nerlens Noel has brought for them as a rim defender and, and Taj in a similar way. It just, I think this kind of loops back to your whole your initial point where you're like, well, they're kind of a team that's built for regular season success, and and that's what we a lot of times with these centers in the league. This isn't the first series we've hit this on where it's like, man, we need more out of that position offensively, like, and and the, when it's just a guy who lives in the dunker spot like Taj or Noel who have actually done good in the dunker spot, it's just overall limiting to them. So I, you know, I'm watching these games trying to think of, you know, how do you, what do you even add to this Knicks team to make them better for next season? And and really, I think you have to kind of question the whole structure of Tibbs' system and, and, you know, and the roster that they're, that they're building out here, because just, just Randall making shots. I, I don't know. Like if he comes back next year and he's a shot maker in the playoffs, still, we have a lot of these problems that would, that would translate the the thing I wanted to you mentioned oh it's RJ Barrett I don't know if we can you know expect that much of him in his first playoff series oh it's Julius Randle he's what is he 26 27 it's his first playoff series you know there's there's this pressure here and it's it's been kind of fascinating in these playoffs whether it's you know, John Morant who we'll talk about in a little bit or you know some of these guys are getting their first taste and it's not a problem at all and Trey is kind of the prime you know the, the prime example of this I have his no stats pull out. God, his numbers are insane. 27 and a half, 10 assists, 37% high volume from three, over 50% from two, high usage. I mean, Trey has been I, Trey's been everything you could have wanted him to be in this series. And it hit it's his first, it's his first shot at it. I mean, as somebody who covers that team and has, has followed Trey throughout his career, did you expect this out of Trey? Or did you did you also kind of come into the series thinking like well, you know, it's his first one. It might take him a little while to get his feet wet, blah, blah, blah. Like, what, what, is your, what is your opinion of Trey Ben early on? 
Yeah, he surprised me. Um, like my official prediction was Hawks and seven. I thought the Knicks would take some control early just because they had the kind of a simplified way of playing that sometimes serves the team well early in the series. Uh, Hawks run a lot more sophisticated stuff, and sometimes that can work against you, especially if, if you're if you have a, a team that's new to the playoffs and I'm feeling a little overwhelmed and things like that. But Trey typically, um, you know. St- starts um we could go back to some, the way he looked in the first few games of summer league uh, which is obviously a totally different thing um you kind of go back to his one game in the uh march madness tournament which you only get one <laughs> you know if you lose um and he typically has a pattern of kind of trying too hard and forcing things early on um and i would that's what surprised me the most i thought by game three or four he would kind of find a rhythm and find a gear that wasn't too high and not too low and kind of gave him an opportunity to a degree to control the game. And that fact that that's been there from basically the first possession of the series, that's been pretty shocking to me. Um, I, I don't, I don't know where it came from. I don't know what kind of preparation went into it, but I he, mean, isn't it just maturity Glenn? I mean, you're talking be. about what he did, what he did when he was 18 in college or 19 in summer league. Like, I think it's, awareness born out of which I, I i'm not saying i would have bet on this to happen either but like <laughs> when once you see it happen and you go that he has been patient he hasn't i mean he's been loud in this series but like he has been patient he's been diligent and you know everything he looks like a vet um and and i think that's just i, I talk about this all the time with the wolves having a constant like cycle of of young guys you're like well when are they going to flip the adult switch on you know like when, and what you know, what can that signal for when we try and bake in when guys are going to make a leap? And and a lot of times it just I think it just ends up being mental maturity where you're reading the game, not just your individual matchup and your your own way to like get yourself off. Like Trey's getting himself off; he's averaging twenty seven and ten. But he, I mean, particularly in game one, right? Like he was he was slow with it. He didn't get to the free throw line until the fourth quarter. And has found a way, got bogey going in the first game. Like, he's played point guard. And that, right? I mean, that's been the whole thing under Nate McMillan is, like, Trey Young really became a point guard of this team, which is still, like, an initiator. But also, I mean, this has been the thing since it came out, right? Like, he's a he's a playmaker. Passing is as good of a skill set of his as is his shooting. He's just, in previous situations, previous years relied more on that shot creation rather than that that playmaking ability and we're seeing it we're seeing it now with 10 assists a game in in this in this series involving everyone yeah and um you know i thought today in game four he started a little bit amped up he he was a little quick had a bit of a quick trigger from really long range today um that's where i think some of his um age kind of started to show through until in a four game sample you for sure live with that and you're really pleased with what you've seen um, but even the fact that, you know, like you mentioned, he didn't, he didn't shoot any free throws the first three quarters of game one in the, in the regular season, he would have been chirping at the refs. You would have seen him maybe distracted him playing, uh, maybe a little out of control, trying to kind of force something. And that's what surprised me the most was that that never happened. He didn't, you never really see him, saw him interacting with the refs more than any other player in the league does. You saw him kind of focusing on his job as um, a lead scorer uh, and a distributor and a guy who is kind of setting things up. Um, and that, that has been, you know, 
you know, really shocking. It's kind of funny how I've seen some things going on Twitter, like people saying, like, can you believe Trey Young didn't make the all-star team? You know, and when, of course, when you watch him in the context of this, he looks like one of the, what, 15 best players in the playoffs right now. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to do an exercise and get that exact list, <laughs> but he's in one of the best 24. But yes. To answer your question. Yes. <laughs> right. Like, for sure. Right. Um, um, it, but every player looks better and it's easier to recognize the value in the, in the, um, a lot of the, a lot of the nuanced players bring when the team is winning. And like, for example, when we were headed towards the all-star break, the Hawks weren't winning and, and that's just going to kind of provide a filter, natural, you know, thing, you know, for observers to kind of see the a player through and things like that. And the conversation around Trey year one and two was, oh, he's putting up big stats on a, on a team that doesn't win any games. And uh, like all things, there was some truth to that. And there was, you know, some, some you know, narrative that unwarranted probably to a degree narrative there. But now you can kind of see what he's capable of doing. Um, but you know, he, I think he really trusts Bogdanovich as kind of a backcourt meet. Um, when Collins leaves the four, for example, Gallo comes in, they upgrade their shooting at the four when the, when the backup four, I mean, how many teams can you say that about, you know, not, yeah, right, right. not many. Um, and so, you know, the roster construction for the Hawks this year, um, is been quite perfect, you know, for trade. They, that's not to say they're done and they, they've got to contribute to an evolve. If they want to be an actual contender down the line but you know the the idea you put a ton of shooting around Trey and kind of set him loose that that's going to give you probably 80 percent of what you need in offense and the rest is around you know things like how do you get hunter enough touches and then how do you keep capella involved whatever that stuff is you're you're going to be in a pretty good place but they the knicks are awesome defensively and they've played i think good defense for the most part in this series it's just that Trey has for whatever reason we can kind of try to I, we could talk for hours about what he's doing and stuff like that, but he's just controlled things from, from the first minute of the game one, basically. From my Timberwolves listeners standpoint, I, I think a lot of Timberwolves fans are going to be watching this series or, or just other teams of, that know John Collins is a free agent this summer. And, and Collins has done very, very little. Um, in in this series, and a lot of that is is the way the roster is constructed, and you know Capella gets in the way, and yada yada yada. Like we can we can go down. Like it, Collins is in is not in a spot to succeed in on that team right now. I agree. Yet at the same time, like he's not really he's very very much not doing anything more than what a playoff role player would provide you like his numbers aren't bad. They're just, they're just muted. I think he's like, it's uh, I have it here somewhere. He's like, he, he's shooting 40% from three, but it's like 10 threes. Right. And he's, he's getting you like 12.6 points. It's just at the end of the day, he's not playing in the playoffs like a player who's about to get a hundred million dollars in free agency, which is again, from a Timberwolves standpoint, the wolves and Hawks have been, connected in you know in that sense and and just from a hawk standpoint of building going forward like you gotta leave this playoffs whenever they end kind of with the idea right that john collins is expendable is that what the narrative kind of is in atlanta world right now that's a word i hear a lot um and i and i i think there's a really interesting conversation to have around you know, what is it worth to retain him, you know, on this Hawks, on this Hawks team? Um, don't get me wrong. He's a good 
player a really good player he gives you easy offense mm-hmm. um you know if you look at his true shooting and you know kind of an average 18 points a game on you know really efficient game um he's pretty dependent on a distributor to to be his best for sure um but you also have to respect the fact that he's really developed himself as a shooter kind of across the league too but um you know he if those numbers, those average per game numbers, he basically did nothing in game two because of all the foul trouble he was in. He didn't play true, a true. ton of minutes. He had a really good game today in game four. Um, but he's the kind of guy like the offense. The yeah, Hawks, but Glenn, he had like a he had like a good game for a role player. You know what I'm saying? Like he's not. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what I'm saying. He yeah, he had the right. kind of he had the kind of game that when a team's offense kind of really starts clicking, he's going to soak up numbers. Because of his ability to run and jump and, and shoot. For sure. You know, so he's going to kind of benefit from the, the offense overall hitting a high gear. If you go watch a game where he gets 25 to 30 points, it's typically when the Hawks overall offense was clicking. And when he's like in spotting up in the corner and knocking down those shots or even attacking an average defender, closing out on him. I mean, that's when he's going to shine. Um, but if you kind of take a step back and try to figure out like, okay, the Hawks went all in financially this past summer, you know, I get it won't fall technically, but you know what I mean? Um, And now he's a restricted free agent. You know, what do you do? You know, his best value proposition to the team is that he can, as a big in the pick and roll, he can do both roles. He can dive to the rim and he's one of the, you know, better uh, lob threats and finishers at the rim. And he can kind of pop to the, the three point line and knock down shots there. So that allows for this Hawks team, for example, he can play with Capella and allow Capella to dive and he'll spot up on the three-point line. He can play with Gallo, let Gallo spot up and he'll dive to the rim. And he makes all of that, that combination of fours and fives work, which is great, which is awesome, which helps kind of your rotation. It helps with some continuity around kind of having fives consistently doing one thing, the fours and another. But then you ask yourself, how much can you spend on that? How much is versatility worth? You know, can you spend, you know, 22 and a half million a year or whatever on a guy who's bringing versatility and kind of becoming a rotation glue guy, making everyone else, he enables everyone else to fit into the role that fits them. He allows Capella to do what he does well, Gallo, et cetera, et cetera. You could even say the same about kind of Solomon Hill, but how much can you spend on a guy when that's the prime, not all of the value, but the primary value he brings to the team I think that's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. Well, if it's, you know, if it's up for debate, if he's quote unquote worth it on that team, it would be your view that there is another team that he would be more valuable on. Correct. It could be. It it, it really, the Hawks are not spending a ton of money at the five and at the four right now. I mean, Gallo's got a pretty big contract, but it's basically to your deal. And, and so in my mind, if a team's built around a really high usage center, I don't know who that team might be, <laughs> then you know, <laughs> there's the opportunity to possibly even uh, kind of service more value in him than what the Hawks can do. Because Collins could come out of a, a game where he has 10 points and nine rebounds and a block, and Capello and Gallo shined the whole game because they were staying in their roles. And mm-hmm. unless you were watching the Hawks consistently kind of game to game all year, you might not realize how much value Collins brought to his teammates in that situation. Right. Um, but, you know, if you're a team that's going to play through a, a Towns or, you know, you know, someone like that, then, you know, his versatility to do a lot of different things to kind of, you know, set up 
Towns, for example, that's probably a higher value proposition situation for a guy like him than right. than with Atlanta. Yeah, so that's where I'm kind of at with it from a Wolves perspective. Is like, I don't have a, I, I wouldn't have a problem that if you could go out and get Collins at you know four years. What what were we thinking the number is like four years, a hundred, four years, one. You said twenty two and a half. I, I think my guess, if I had to kind of put a uh, a median Over kind under. of guess, four one ten is probably where I think he kind of lands. See, so. So I could like I think that's like questionable, but I I could get behind that. Like you kind of got to go if you're the wolves, like that you know that makes sense. You probably got to clear some some salary elsewhere. That I think what I would be really it's that that's not what the only question is. It's not from a wolves perspective. It's not or any other team's perspective. It's not just is he worth four years one ten. It's also going to be like a, a sign and trade, right? That I mean that's. I, I'm assuming that's how the like the Hawks would maneuver maneuver this. Like I don't think they're just gonna straight let him let him walk there. And I know sign and trades are often kind of you know small in terms of compensation. But if you again, if you look at it from a Wolves perspective, it's like all right, we're putting that 22 mil like that you got to send out. Um, like how do you, how do you put that money together? And and like Ricky Rubio isn't isn't exactly a a great deal at $18 million, but, but he is, you know, he has some value to this team in Anthony Edwards and, and just it in that sort of way, I don't think the Hawks would want Ricky Rubio. So now you're kind of talking about Malik Beasley, something like that. It's just, it's not just, if you could just sign him to, I should say this, if you can just sign him as a restricted free agent and, and outbid the Hawks, you know, you do it. But if it is a, is a sign and trade, like they're going to probably hold you over the barrel to some degree and force that to happen or match themselves, like to prevent them from matching, you're going to have to pay up a little extra. And I don't know exactly what that would be. And that would, could get me to a point where I would say this might not be worth it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and the thing for me is that the sign and trade for restricted for you specifically I think most of them right now have been resulting in basically a trade exception and not a mm-hmm. real, not an actual player. I think if we go back a you know a few years, we see Rogier going to Charlotte. I mean, that's what you got for Kendall Walker's. I'm sorry, but that's not you know mm-hmm. super impressive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I think teams buy themselves basically 12 months to kind of turn that into something else. They hope uh, when that can happen. And so I agree with you. The Hawks are unlikely to just kind of let him walk if it gets to a number where they think, I, you know, I think the thing for me is that the Hawks could see themselves saying, you know, let's throw a lot of money at Collins to make sure we have him on our uh, books next season. But it's that four years at that value. And then as you and I know, a lot of teams that are going to try to, uh, you know, convince the Hawks to not match are going to throw trade kickers and, you know, all, right. all that stuff on there. Um and so, so we'll see, but, you know, as, as a person who roots for the Hawks as a fan, setting that aside, when I write and analyze, you know, I, I think if they do a sign of trade, it's probably what, like 70% likely they're going to accept some back and buying themselves 12 months, something to do with it. Um, and not a lot more. I mean, can, can like a Culver or someone like, you know, a Culver plus what other, other salary might work with that? Is that interesting enough, you know? to get something back, you know, sort of a, a roll of the dice with a guy like that. I mean, who knows? Um, but, you know, it, it is interesting to think about 
how his value proposition changes in in different environments and in but but at the same time if you have a team that doesn't play through the point guard i think you have to be a little cautious about him too because that's that's basically what he's been in with trey since his year too and um and you know so but you, but, but glenn that's delo though like they're gonna play through delo too like delo in ways is like trey right that'd be the same idea the pick a pick and roll with collins like that's how you would use him or maybe ant develop some of that not that those guys are on trey's level right. necessarily but yeah i mean that that's what the wolves just got to figure out <laughs> who are they playing through in general like how much is this going to be a cat thing how much is this going to be a delo ant but i think that's why collins what, what collins could do for any team is whoever the point guard is really up that point guard to another level because like you mentioned he's an elite rim rolling option he's also a solid pick and pop option like that's whatever team you put john collins on he's going to make whoever the point guard is a lot better yeah i, I agree that makes sense and i uh it's, it's that's going to be one of the most fascinating things that happens come come uh you know time for um yeah, free agency and all and all that. It's going to be super fascinating to see what happens there for sure. Well, we'll wrap up the the Hawks part on on that. Let's uh, let's take a quick break and then come back and talk some another point guard who is making his debut in the playoffs with John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies and their series against the Utah Jazz. We'll be back in a second. Look, no one's perfect. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash more now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash more and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash more now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash more. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. If you love listening to podcasts, if you love listening to this podcast, nothing's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show. There's no better place to start hosting your own podcast than Blue Wire Hustle. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take their podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is also the perfect place. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art for your pod, Q&As with Blue Wire's podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all those listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate any hosting site will charge you to just have the initial setup done for your podcast. So if you're ready to do more than just listen to me, talk about hoops, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join Check out the description box in this episode to find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. All right, Glenn, so I've been watching this Grizzlies series um, and, and seeing what John Morant has been doing and quite frankly been surprised that it, I mean, not that John hasn't been good this year, but really like 
the recent kind of comparison to draw from what we've seen from draw early on is kind of like Luca last year almost, right? And this this ability to be a star player when in his second year in the league. And we we just don't there's none of the test in the water for him. It's the same thing with Trey that he is he's come in and you know, and been a superstar right away. And whether they win or lose the series, they're down 2-1 right now. Like how how does what Jaw has shown in this series kind of sort of change your perspective of the trajectory of the Grizzlies? Yeah, I mean, it, it's especially in the even though they lost the game, that big offensive um, you know, performance he had in Game Two, um, just his ability to against you know one of the better defensive teams in the league. Utah's been one of the best defensive teams in the league. They have you know what you know a lot of people consider Rudy Gobert to be the best defensive center in the league. That he can still get into the heart of that defense and get inside relatively easy just opens the door for the Grizzlies to kind of create a lot from that. Um, now, you know, when you see Ja not always helping his team is him doing young stuff, which is, you should be completely expected, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't, you know, kind of discount my, you know, expectations for him in the future because of any of that, you know, he'll force shots at the rim, force, you know, highly contested shots at the rim, but maybe he make a, make a different decision. But the, it's not like he's doing that typically all game long. You'll see him kind of get to a situation where he's, you know, there are three or four minutes left. They're down, say, eight or ten points, and he's trying to kind of put his team on his back, which I think right. says a lot of mostly, you know, good stuff about him being a guy who's willing to kind of step up and try to kind of try to make something happen at that point in the game. He's not um, the most dynamic passer. I don't think he'll ever be. He's a good, good passer. He's just not kind of in that elite tier of passing kind of from anywhere on the court. He's really good at the pick and roll. He can make all the passes in the pick and roll and things like that. But I think that, you know, what I expect of him going forward is a guy who can carry a heavy, heavy scoring workload. He's a, He's a easily a good enough passer to punish teams that commit extra defenders to him. Um, and, you know, what he does in the pick and roll, which is a league wide staple. And, you know, with Taylor Jenkins be out of the, out of the bud slash pop tree, there's a heavy kind of presence of that there he, to me, kind of the, the sky's the limit. So long as he can cut down on his bad decisions and his mistakes. And I don't know why, based upon everything we hear about the work ethic he has how hard he works, how committed he is to his team and his teammates. I don't know of any reason to not be optimistic that he's just going to get better and better. And this is, you know, one of the reasons I think teams do well to sneak into an eighth seed um, when other people might say, well, you're just going to get bounced, go tank, go get another draft pick. The experience that your franchise guy, John Morant, is getting in this series, especially if you can get this to like at least – Six games. I mean, I don't know how to put a price tag on that. So he's well, been, just the he's, information you're getting, right? Like for sure that you know that, like you gotta feel a lot. I mean, they probably already believed in Jaw a lot that he could be a number one guy. But somebody who was maybe more skeptical, you would be like, well, you know, I I don't know. Like we think Jaw is gonna be a really good player in this league, but but now I think, and granted, it's only three games, so we don't gotta like we don't gotta crown him a superstar in the league just off of three games, but I think you not only are getting him the experience, I think you're, you're giving yourself to, to use the term you used before the information loop of like, 
the trajectory of this team could be different because now we can feel confident that John Morant is going to be a 1A guy on on a team. He's he's illustrated this again against a great defense in Utah and that he can be dynamic without his shot even kind of being of any sort of weapon, right? From 3 and I guess that's where if we're going glass half empty, you start to, you know, you start to wonder about it is like are there ways where a team could wall up against him and, and turn him into a jump shooter? That will probably, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, that'll probably determine where he can really go is where his where his jump shot goes. Is he gonna be is he gonna be Derek Rose circa Bulls, or is he gonna be a pick and roll player more like Luka Doncic in you know in that sort of way? And he's I think I think the the improved quality of his jump shot will determine kind of his upside. Yeah, the jump shot the jump shot is key for sure. And you know, I mean, it's so hard to predict like which guys can you know kind of become go from where he is to become like a thirty a reliable thirty eight ish percent shooter, which is phenomenal mm-hmm. for a guy who plays off the dribble like Jaw does. Um, you know, he doesn't need to get there to be really, really, really good. But that we're talking about like like all NBA level year to year, that's maybe kind of where he needs to get. But in addition to that, if you watch him play and kind if you're kind of really, you know, sometimes have to watch a play several times, watch, you know, a possession and, and kind of play, watch it a few times to kind of work through his own progressions and reads. You know, if I'm right now, if I'm coaching against him and, and trying to defend him, I'm trying to get him to take a kind of what I would describe as a running attempt near the rim when he gets to two feet inside of his inside of about 10 feet from the basket and kind of get that base he has such good verticality and such good balance that's when he's good when you can convince him he has a narrow shot at a layup whether off the backboard of the rim and it's more of a kind of a passing attempt as he flies through the lane that to me that's cleaning up his kind of layup decision making and his Rim decision making is probably step one and the most important thing for me, for him to really maximize his uh, really elite ability to penetrate with the with the dribble, and I would put the the perimeter shot as kind of a pretty close second, but that that's my view. I just you know interesting, yeah. But I mean, I've seen so many times where Trey, you know, especially before he had this good team put around him this year, would make that decision and it ends up being not only a lower percentage shot than maybe he thought before he kind of made that decision, but he also ends up on the ground on the baseline and his team is running back and setting up to defend, you know, four on five and job puts himself in his team in that situation a lot. Now Trey did that a ton in year one and two. And that's one of the things he's cleaned up this year that's helped them in the playoffs. But, you know, I, when I try to imagine as a, as a person with a coaching background, what does it look like for Jaw to get there? It's reps in the gym, practice, uh, player development, you know, environment, all of that. And Memphis has a super strong player development culture to what they do. Jaw, by all accounts, has an awesome work ethic and is really committed to his craft. And so I think just that as he has an opportunity to kind of kind of put in all of that work that you see him start to clean up parts of his game that aren't always the most helpful thing. And then in addition to that, if he can become the more consistent shooter, then he becomes, you know, one of the legitimately one of the very best point guards in the league. And I mean, if you said Glenn, how likely players is, in the league <laughs> for Maybe. sure. Yeah. But I'm talking about like, 
you know, with a league with like Dame Lillard and if we call Luca a point guard, like putting a guy in like that top three or four, that's some that's a really something, you know, right. in that category. Then that's what he becomes in my mind. How likely is it? I, I can't tell you, you know, mm-hmm. from a mental standpoint of like, can he become a guy who makes jump shots when he's tired? And that's that's where the great shooters and the good shooters kind of get separated, just little areas like that. We'll see, but he has all of the raw, you know, kind of baseline skills to basically become, you know, as elite as uh, the elite point guards in the league, in my mind, just needs more time and more work. Right. I mean, that he does have things that can be polished up on to improve on what he's already been, which is through three games in the series, 34 points a game, four boards, six assists, shooting nearly 60% from two on 33% 33% usage. I mean, he's having an insane series as this player who is, as you kind of put it, just sort of raw is, yeah, if I'm if I'm Memphis, I'm like, yeah, the sky is the limit. He, he could be, I think, you now, again, after having seen this in the playoffs, you can now start to really consider the idea that you might have your franchise's Damian Lillard. I guess maybe Grizzlies fans already thought that, but again, maybe more skeptical people were like, oh, do they need something else? Does he ultimately need to be the two? Like, no, I, I think with player development, John Morant is on a superstar sort of trajectory. The more important team, though, I guess, in, in this series is the one seed, the the Utah Jazz, who really have not – I mean, they're up 2-1 to one right now in, in this series, but have not separated themselves – um, much they certainly don't look like a one seed I would say um, just having watched these these three games what um how was how is how this played out in the first three games kind of impacted your view of of Utah as just even a contender in the west to to win their next series if they are able to get out of this one yeah I think it's I think it's brought attention to some mostly fair questions about are the you know are they your prototypical kind of one seed? I, I think on the face of it, we can say uh, probably not because they don't have you know most teams who do that have a an obvious top five or top ten whatever you want to say kind of player in the league that they're built around, and right. they don't they don't have that in that way. They remind me of the sixty win Hawks team you know that got the first seed. And when they got to the finals and against LeBron, who, you know, arguably, obviously the best player in the league for some time, they just had nothing for that situation. Um, and so I think that there are fair questions. I I don't want to say that there's never a path for a team like that. I just think it's a it can be a pretty narrow path, depending upon you know who else wins in the first round and kind of who else advances. Um, I personally think this series is done. I, I think, uh, I don't know, Memphis may win one more, but similar to kind of when I texted you that I thought the Knicks were done, I thought in game three, uh, Utah completely broke Memphis's pick and roll coverage. And similar to the 100%. situation for the Knicks on offense, I don't see a solution on defense. And a lot of that comes down to, I, t- I tweeted last night in the middle of the game uh, that, you know, God bless Taylor Jenkins for being this committed to playing Jaron Jackson Jr. in this playoff, getting him his playoff experience. He's so brutal defensively, but it's not like there's this obvious, like, you know, say 11 year, you know, vet over there that can come in and just give you really solid kind of play at the four, you know, or the five. But I just, I think that Utah with all their playmaking and their ball sharing and how precise they are in running their strong side and, you know, flipping it to the kind of the weak side or second side offense, is just completely 
um, uh, you know, expose the Grizzlies for not having guys at the four and five that can kind of move right. quite well. I mean, as solid as Tillman has looked at times, as good as Brandon Clark can kind of be at times, you know, they need they need rim presence and rim protection, and that's something that on paper, on the combination of Valanciunas and Jackson give you. But Jackson is an absolutely terrible decision maker. I still, you know, the normal optimistic line, I'm still hopeful he can kind of figure it out um, and, and all of that. But I just, I, I honestly think that going forward, the Jazz probably went out from here, um, but that the, it, it's still been a good outcome for the Grizzlies to throw this team and this roster into this environment and get that, get that feedback loop. So, I mean, Ja is a team I think you can kind of put all of your belief in. But and I think you, but I think you realize that they need a, a bit of a different construction defensively to be able to kind of go into, you know, almost any playoff series, especially in the Western Conference, and have you know enough um, kind of uh, you know defensive um, you know stability and competence uh, to be able to kind of hold up and not get your team completely broken the way that they've been in the series. Right, and you bring up the pick and roll there. And looking at it from the Utah side. I think it's been super interesting to watch how the dynamic of their pick and roll changes when Conley is initiating the pick and roll with Gobert versus when Mitchell is initiating the pick and roll with Gobert. And and Conley is is about reading the action on the floor and quote unquote making the right play, right? Finding finding Gobert on the roll, finding the kick to whatever corner might be like He's he's figuring that all out like a like a quarterback, and it's particularly against a limited defensive team like the Grizzlies are. It just seems like money in the bank, and you could just run that every time. Yet they got to get Mitchell involved too, and Mitchell's like going through the motions, and he's still getting that screen from Gobert, but he isn't getting downhill into like quarterback mode, ready to make the play. Like he's more so looking for his own shot. And that's because he's more of a shot maker than and he's not a pure point guard the way Conley is. But it's this weird when I watch them, it's just it, it's a little uncomfortable for me when I'm watching Mitchell be the the initiator right there because it doesn't seem congruent with the rest of their roster. Now if he's making shots it doesn't really matter. But as I look forward with this this jazz team, it's like I think their formula for beating someone one of these really talented teams in the second or third round it's about just kind of out teaming them right and and kind of more the Conley path yet Mitchell's such a big part of this too and I think that maybe the normal thought process is like no you just go through your shot maker what what have you seen as kind of I don't know maybe I'm out on an island here but uh it's it's felt a little bizarre to me when when Mitchell's going yeah, it, it is weird, and it's funny when when I saw the outline you sent through, I remember the game that Mitchell. I don't know if you remember this, but the Mitchell game in Philly, I want to say two full years ago, where he had I think thirty one field goal attempts and no assists. Do you remember that game? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Greg, I do remember that. Greg was at that game. My brother Greg was at that game live, and I had a chance to ask him later. I was like, "Did you know that that was going on?" He said he was shocked at the end of the game to realize that's what had happened, but not many guys can do that <laughs> and not, <laughs> not have their reputation kind of torched. But um, you know, I'm pretty pro uh, Donovan, but I, I think that you have to be honest and say that he is a bit limited as a creator. You know, it's, it's interesting. We could have a long conversation about 
the path that he took to the league and how, you know, I think all the mocks when he was coming in had him in the 15 to 22 range, even if that, right. you know, and stuff. And, you know, he was a baseball player, serious baseball player for a while. and didn't have all of the typical kind of AAU and high school experience where he was the guy. And in fact, he was really never that even in Louisville, he was never that. And, you know, and once he got put into kind of workout situations in the pre-draft processes and stuff, people started to realize like, wow, his combination of, you know, athleticism and speed and length and, and he was just good enough with the ball, you know, kind of in that environment to think like, well, this is a, this is kind of a really good lottery ticket. You know, I think I had him fourth on my board by the time he came out, but I'll be honest, that was a lot of to do with his raw speed and his leaping ability. And what I, I thought he'd be kind of one of those guys who's, you know, gives most of his value defensively and is a good enough secondary kind of creator on offense. But, you know, the, the thing for me, Dane, to kind of answer your question after a, you know, <laughs> circular setup, if I go, for me, when I, you know, when I watch the Jazz and, you know, it, it takes me back again, like I said, to the 61 Hawks team. And what always kind of broke that team the few times that they broke was when they couldn't produce anything offensively and the best teams attack their offense uh, as a team. But when everything breaks down, you can throw the ball to your best guy and he can produce some reasonably valuable looks. That's what you get with Mitchell that you don't typically see on a team like this is he's willing to take tough shots. He's willing to take shots in tough moments and pressure filled moments. He's been historically an above average, if not more than that kind of shot maker in moments like that. And so he has, I, I, I hate when people use like the word heart or whatever, you know, but he just has a, I'll say, willingness to kind of step up and take shots like that that not everybody, every player has. So, you know, I, if he were like an, a really dominant on-ball player, I don't think they would ever get the team stuff they get offensively, but they have something um, that oh, a lot of teams point. that are built like that have when it all breaks down. He's willing to try to take on that role, and he's been pretty competent at it in the past. And that's what makes me kind of scratch my head and think, do they have a better shot than I think because they have a you know a, another option that a lot of teams built like them don't? And I try to answer that question even kind of within my own you know mental processes, and it's super hard for me to land an answer in terms of you know what odds do I think they have of actually getting to the finals? You know, I don't think it's super high, but maybe I'm not getting them enough, enough credit for how they can handle different kind of, kinds of adverse situations where they have a little bit more to work with than most teams that are built like them do. I mean, isn't the answer just kind of that they have to pass that baton perfectly? Like they have to, they have to play that team game while simultaneously going to, you know, going to Mitchell when they need the, the shot creation too. Like, yeah, I think if they do that perfectly, like they can beat a lot of these teams in the West. It's, it just, I guess, in these two games now that Mitchell has has played, it has not felt like a smooth baton pass. Right. And, you know, maybe we see more through the rest of this series or whatever, but I was like, about a month ago, I was talking to Britt on the pod about this, and I was, and this is when the Lakers were really floundering and stuff, I was, I was working on a, like, Utah out of the West, like, being, you know, winning the West uh, take, I guess you would call it kind of after Jamal Murray went down. And I was like, I just think that they can kind of, I think they can just out execute a lot of these other teams when, you know, the Lakers were, would be the team that could out talent them, but they weren't looking like that. 
And I think I, I was just watching a lot of the Jazz then when they were playing without Mitchell, who was, who was out with his ankle injury. And I kind of, in my head, was like, oh, well, they look awesome right now, and now they're just going to get this added bonus of a great shot creator, right? And so it's addition by addition. <laughs> but in these two games, it's it's been less congruent than I, I thought, not to mention, you know, you, you lost the first game of the series to the eighth seed and, you know, you're keeping it really close against a team that's nowhere near as talented as you. It's like, it, it's caused me to back off on any sort of kind of optimism that I would have about Utah, even winning next round against Dallas or the Clippers. Like either of those teams, you're picking the Clippers or the Mavs, right? Um. I'd pick the Clippers. I don't know about the Mavs. I, I, I it seems crazy, but at this point in time, I yeah, mean, maybe we're my, being too reactive. I, yeah, I don't know. No, the the I all season long, I thought the Mavs defense has just been terrible, and the, and they don't really <laughs> have anything to turn. They just, you know, they're just they don't protect the rim, and they don't, you know, I mean, they have some useful defense. Like Maxi is a good versatile big man, but. You know, and Willie Colley Stein can do things like get out on the perimeter and recover back to the rim, but he's just not a good enough decision maker. And so I just feel like they're they're lacking their the backline defenders you need to really do well in a series like that. But and, and even now, like you know, I think you know, I'm pretty low on the Clippers just because I think that they basically hate playing together. <laughs> um but I don't I don't I, I think I I would for sure pick the Clippers to come out ahead of them unless the Clippers just, you know, you know, set themselves on fire. Um, with the Mavericks, you know, I, I think they have a hard time holding up to all the really good things Utah can do offensively, you know, but, to, you know, the, the the point you made a few minutes ago was don't they just rely on all their team stuff? And in the playoffs, I think yeah, that's... Like we just call it team stuff. We both yeah. know what we're talking about. Right. Team ball stuff, ball movement and, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. clean DHOs and, you know, strong side of the weak sides, you know, rotating the ball, all that stuff. But in a, against a team in the playoffs that's really locked in on what you do, trust me, I speak from experience, oftentimes for stretches that turns into just perimeter shots. And any team is susceptible to just having a stretch where they stop making shots. And so it's, right. it's sort of that whole cliche, live by the three, die by the three. But the, the Jazz, when they are just taking what the defense gives them, four stretches, that's going to turn into perimeter shots. And you can't just ever really control. I mean, you can't make shots for the perimeter on sheer will, you know, <laughs> you know, right. either they go down or they're not for whatever reason, but that's where I think they become a little bit susceptible to an offensive drought at just the wrong time. Um, you know, and, and that's where I see like the Clippers can play really, really well defensively. Um, the Mavs is just not in them, you know, right. and, and Luca, the workload on Luca is like crazy, but you know, in terms of Utah getting out, like, can Phoenix knock off the Lakers? You know, uh, how healthy, if the Jazz run up against Phoenix in that scenario, how healthy is Chris Paul? The Dallas can play at a really high level. Offensively, their defense is garbage. The Clippers hate each other, you know. And so <laughs> when I think about the Jazz coming out, it almost I'm almost telling a story about the field rather than them. As, even as good as they are, the yeah. field is kind of set for a team like them to make a run this year. And then I think it would be awesome to watch and a lot of fun. If I'm kind of being a fan on the net, the more of the analytical me looks at some of their limitations and thinking like, you know, they need a, a kind of a particular path to get there in my view. Right. I, I think that could like, everybody's going to be super locked on bucks nets in, in the second round, but that could low key be 
one of, if not the best, you know, I, I it's the Bucks Nets is going to be the best second round series. But like, I think Utah versus Dallas or the Clippers, you know, could be could be really fascinating because I mean, look at all these questions we have, you know, right. and we've we've watched them all season and we've watched them, you know, play through this. It's it's basically like this idea of. How do these identities that we understand well from having watched these teams played all season, how do they translate to the playoffs? And we don't really know that really well with Utah. We don't really know that all that well with Dallas or or with the Clippers either because none of them have really shown it on a, on a playoff stage, and or, not to mention against each other. Or Phoenix, or in a way this version yeah. of the Lakers, on and on, right? Right, right. That's why these playoffs are, are awesome. The the team that's getting buried, and, and this will be our, our kind of last topic, we're not going to dig too far into the, the X's and O's of Wizards Sixers, but I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Sixers because, I mean, as we do move into the second round here eventually, again, all the focus is going to be on Bucks Nets. There's going to be probably the Lakers in the second round. Everything go- and And the – the Sixers, I mean, no offense to your Hawks, are probably just gonna probably beat up the Hawks and and you know and and win this series and have the what people have been saying from the beginning, like they got the super easy path to the Eastern Conference Finals. Has like has the combination of what's happened here in these two weeks since the season ended, has anything happened, whether it be specifically to the Sixers and what you've seen in these three games, or to the field as you called it before, has anything shifted that has changed your perception on what philly is as a content like a winning the championship contender yeah so the thing for me that's changed a little bit is to watch how Embiid has increasingly become a guy who relies on a face-up game instead of trying to function in the post he's i mean i think i think we would agree that he's a really limited passer he's been really really turnover prone and one of the ways that Doc's staff has really addressed that and made him a more impactful and efficient player, I made a note earlier, um, he averaged 28 and a half a game on 63.6 true shooting percentage. That is bonkers. <laughs> that is ridiculous. And it's really ridiculous for a guy who doesn't really shoot the three. You know, um, Now, he lives at the, at the free throw line. We know that. But that's because nobody can physically handle him. But, you know, with – the most fascinating part of this team is the whole trend in the league of people going away from big guys, especially on offense, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The post is dead, all that conversation, which, you know, conversations like that are never fully true or false. You know, there's something in the middle, but the fact that they've converted him to basically a face-up player and they give him a chance to see the floor, he's a better passer. He sees the passes better, obviously, than when he has his back to the the floor and, and can't really see the second defender coming and all that stuff. You know, I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm I'm a little higher on them, even though the Wizards are atrocious on defense. Just the tactics of what they do with him individually on offense, I think, sets him in a better place and makes um, creates a situation where some of the previous downside that came along with him is lessened. And and, and in my mind, I think, for example, in a matchup with the Nets, who in the hell is going to guard him? on that Mets right. team, you know, and even with, with the Bucks, you could see kind of, you know, Brooke taking you know, trying to take a lot of those minutes, but I, I'm sorry, but Brooks just not going to be able to do anything for him. And the question you ask yourself in those situations is, does, if he is like your engine, can he give you enough if the Nets are putting up, you know, 125 
a game against you and, and, you know, and things like that. That's a wonderful question to have going to that series that we don't have to have an answer for, but I'm mm-hmm. higher on the Sixers now than I was probably a couple months ago as a result of them kind of further committing to Embiid, the face-up player. So the way I think about Joel Embiid this season, whenever I start, you know, as I was taking notes for this, or whatever, the, the thing, when I watched Joel Embiid this year, which granted, you know, I'm not, I'm obviously not an all 82 or all 72 Sixers watcher, but I, I think Joel Embiid was the best player in the NBA this season. I think Nikola Jokic was the MVP, but just in like, if I could isolate for all the games of basketball I watched this season and put that all in a pile and grab out the player who played the best in the time when I was actually watching the game, it's Joel Embiid and it's not even close. In, in, in how I kind of compute that in my head, and maybe that's happenstance of who I was watching and all those sort of things. As great as Nikola Jokic was, like pound for pound, I think Joel Embiid was the best player in the NBA this year. And now maybe some people don't agree with that, or maybe that sort of narrative has just gotten buried in the idea that people don't believe in him due to the injuries, and you know they're discounting it because he only played 50 games or whatever, 45, whatever he played. And I just go back to talent in the playoffs so often. And if I can trust the coaching staff enough, which I think I can in Philly with doc, like I, I think I'm going to oftentimes like rely on who I think is the, the most talented player. And, and, and if they do get to the conference finals, you know, either Giannis is going to be coming on off an awesome series where he just beat Brooklyn or KD is going to, KD or Harden are going to become and have gone off an awesome series and going to look like one of the like the best player in the league. But there is there's a situation that I think I would almost bet on that in that series, if Joel Embiid is healthy, that he will be the best player in the Eastern Conference Finals, even against like fully loaded Giannis, fully loaded Kevin Durant. Not I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not guaranteeing that or anything like that. But I. In when I put my finger to the wind and <laughs> Twitter or whatever it might be, and and it says I don't I don't think I don't think that that's the perception of Joel Embiid, and I think that's kind of unfair. And and his his dominance, as you highlighted in those statistics, it's just kind of been a fact that when he's played, he has been just an absolute force, and in my opinion, the 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 greatest force in the league, pound for pound, this season. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's all fair. I, I I do think the average NBA fan has no idea how good Joel Embiid is. Um, I think I think I think we I think we collectively, uh, even though I don't necessarily buy into this, I'll I'll still say all of us contribute in whatever way that we see as oh Embiid is the guy who plays the defense. Jokic doesn't play, and Jokic has all the the passing the passing bag, you know, and the creation bag that Embiid doesn't have. And that's just way oversimplified. I mean, to start with, Jokic has been so much better defensively than Sheer than he's been in prior years. For sure. But he's not on a, a Gobert and B level, obviously. That's not the standard we're ever going to you know, have for him. And then, you know, for Embiid, I just think that, you know, he's not, you know, him taking his little face up, step back, you know, 15 footer, it's just not something that's going to show up on, on Twitter or highlights, you know, like a crazy Jokic pass or whatever. 
and sure. you know and stuff and i just think that that kind of factors into what the collective or the consensus view of a player is um you know I, and i think Glenn, i think that's what i'm talking about when like i sit down and watch a full 48 minutes right. of a game you know like what i don't know what the word is like for calling that but like when you extract out the value of those players when you're actually watching like a full game in the way when again like a lot of fans they just watch only their team in in full games it's just crazy to watch a Sixers game when it beats clicking, which is all has been the majority of the games this season. He is, he is, has been an unstoppable force. Right. Yeah. And, and he's the guy who I would say when he's that, the other 29 teams and other 29 teams in the league, there's literally nothing you can do there. I mean, there's nothing you can do mm-hmm. except, he, except hope he misses shots. You know, I can obviously like, we talk about KD is basically a seven footer. He can just get to a jump shot and shoot over any defender. And that's true. But like, if I could kind of break down KD's game, just one little example is when he has the ball in that mid slash extended post, I could tell you he starts with it back to the play. And before he dribbles, he's functioning as a passer. Once he takes his first dribble, he is 100% functioning as a shooter. And there's no, never any crossover between the two. And so that reality itself create some predictability that a defense can kind of attune to and say, we're going to change as a passer before he dribbles after he dribbles, we're going to run a second defender at him and make him shoot over two shooters because he's not going to pass the ball after he takes his first triple, you know, and that's just that, that kind of analysis and that kind of, you know, floor reading for a defensive unit just doesn't come into play, you know, for Embiid. I mean, first of all, if he's the step back, he, he has enough force in kind of getting into you to get to that. That you cannot get to, you can't get to him. There's no way to kind of really get to him once he's doing that. With Harden, you know, he has a history of kind of running out of gas, of course, and becoming a guy who's missing a lot of shots. And there's some things you can do to kind of, you know, maybe, um, you know, move Harden further along in that kind of fatigue cycle. Where I just think with Embiid, yeah, you can try to make the the Sixers feel pressure to play in 41, 42 minutes, which is a ton for a guy of his size. But no one else in the league, literally no one else in the league, when they kind of get into their primary bag, not even, you know, kind of a secondary thing or whatever, no one can kind of put themselves in a category where there's nothing that the team can do like Embiid. And it's going to be fascinating to see. Sorry, Hawks fans. Sixers are going to win that series. Hawks fans are excited because the Hawks have done well against the Sixers, you know, the last since Trey came in the league for the most part, but it's not a reliable sample. And, um, uh, and the reality is, is that I just don't know what you do with him except run a second defender at him right away and force someone else to make plays. But, you know, Simmons is good slashing. He's good. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say is like, so what are, I mean, I think what we're coming down to is like, what are those other guys going to provide for the Sixers or how much do they need to provide? Is, and that's where, if, Seth, if Embiid's going to be that. Right. And that's where having an elite shooter like Seth on the team has really moved the needle for them. They didn't have that, mm-hmm. you know, before they added Seth. Now, we could talk about, you know, what did they lose to Josh Ritt? That was an awesome trade, you know, for the Sixers to add mm-hmm. one of the three or four best, literally three or four best shooters in the whole league, you know, at that position, especially since Thibault was ready to kind of step up and they added Danny Green, you know, a, a very, you know, reliable on, you know, on ball point attack defender. Um, you know, for me, I feel like every playoff game I watch, Danny Green either goes six for six or one for nine, you know, and so <laughs> it's like, what do you get from him? And that I trust Seth all the time as a shooter. Is Simmons going to, you know, 
Simmons has gotten better at like not losing his mind, you know, with any sort of, you know, frequency the way he did in the past and things like that. I think that probably has to do with not only how deep Doc's coaching staff is, but just how much continuity there is in his staff, the guys that he always has around him and all of that. So I just, I think the team is set up in a really good environment. Uh, I think that they have their head on straight. I think that a lot of the drama that's kind of, you know, you know, kind of drain them a little bit of their, you know, success and your positive energy. And I, I mean, even Tobias Harris had his best season in the league. You know, we, 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 I didn't even mention him until just now. And he's been so good this year. So I, I, I actually love Philly's chance to get out of the East, um, even though I, I think we all have to say on paper, I, I don't know how you put someone above Brooklyn, but with Brooklyn, I want to see like, can, you know, um, you know, can their coaching staff help their team when things get hard, you know, um, you know, that's a real question. And will, um, you know, Katie and Harden work together instead of my turn, your turn, you know, when things get hard. And I just think we won't know that. I'm not saying they'll fail. I'm not saying, oh, they suck. But yeah. I'm just saying, I don't think there's anybody to know until we see them in that moment where there's adversity mm-hmm. and things are not coming easily to them. Um, and so for that reason, I think I stacked the Sixers up, you know, really quite well, I guess. I'd put them over the bucks to get out, and I'd put well, them. I mean, let's just math this out. Like, is the smart bet to say Philly out of the East? Like, if we're putting odds on it, simply because, you know, I, I think we both are in agreement that like Brooklyn's the best team, but like, the chessboard's set up in a way here where right. like Brooklyn could be the best team and still has an X percent chance to lose to Milwaukee, like. I, I, I'm in the camp of I think Brooklyn's going to win the championship. So, like, but this is somewhat unprecedented that arguably Brooklyn and Milwaukee are two of the three best teams right now in the league, maybe, and and they have to play each other. So that just kind of cuts down your odds in half or whatever, however you want to do it, right. whereas, like, Philly's going to be there already. I I know Vegas odds would don't reflect this, but – it almost seems like the smarter logical bet is just to take Philly coming out of the East. Yeah. I'm not as high on Milwaukee as you. And and I think a lot of other people, I'm not, I'm not anti, you know, Giannis or whatever. He just just hate bud. You just hate bud. Well, no, (laughs) I think it's, it's funny. I think bud's a really, really good coach. I think he's not alone and that he's pretty stubborn in the playoffs, you know, um, that's like I said, he's not alone at all. I, I, you know, I talked about this with Brad Roland on his podcast recently, but I was just saying that that's the norm. That's not an exception for him to be a coach to be stubborn sure, yeah. in the playoffs. You know, but but for me, I don't really believe Milwaukee has enough creation. I think I think for example, even when Giannis and Drew are on and Middleton's off, that it's just too easy to force them to take you know off the dribble jump shots. And I just think that they don't have enough. Um, creation to, to to kind of go deep. I still think they're missing that. It, I have jokingly, you know, said on Twitter like a week ago that I feel like the Bucks are one Bogdanovich away from being a real contender. You know, <laughs> and um, you know, and it, I, I I probably never say that if if I don't have so many Hawks followers, you know, and things like that. But they just really are lacking one more guy, and that's not necessarily just about like what the Nets team is this year. But I think the Nets, while not awesome defensively are smart enough and experienced enough to know how to force 
Milwaukee to do things that aren't their forte. And so I, I think like the Brooklyn wins in a reasonably comfortable six games there. And I think we get Brooklyn Philly. And I think like, I want to take like two weeks off from work and like do nothing <laughs> but live and breathe and eat and sleep like that series and stuff like that. I think it'll be awesome. And I, I think it's one of those things where if I like said, okay, um, I really think after looking at this mathematically, say this, say I think the Sixers are like a 55% favorite in that matchup. You feel so dumb even saying that out loud, like even not on a podcast <laughs> or whatever, you know, you just feel so dumb um, but yeah. but I I think they're right there with Brooklyn to get out of the East in, in my mind. Maybe I end up looking foolish about that, but I just think, like I said before, so much of that just comes down to you know there's nothing they can do with Embiid, and mm-hmm. and to your question, you know, can they get enough juice out of Simmons, Harris, Seth, Green? You know, you know, can they? avoid having a, a, an opposing team make Tybal look like, you know, yeah. uh, you know, a, you know, a dysfunctional Robertson. kind of non-shooter. Except Robertson. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the kind. So, um, you know, they don't, they're not super, super deep, deep. Can, can Dwight keep doing the simple, basic kind of, you know, hard work kind of things about all the glory and things like he, he dealt with Lakers last year, but you know, there's this guy named LeBron on that team, you know? So, I mean, there's some fair questions about Philly, but I think it's one of those things like I would, I might say I would have them as my favorite by just a few percentage points and feel like I said, dumb as a rock <laughs> for even putting that out there. <laughs> no, I, you got to consider the bracket in there. And like we said, the fact that Embiid, I, I think Embiid deserves that credit. And now, maybe what we're not factoring in is obviously the whole injury thing. That's just so annoying that we have to calculate that into every Embiid sure. equation, but we do. it. I mean, man, I you and I have been doing podcasts in the playoffs for for years now and talking about series in this sort of way. And and it, I, I've never had a year where I feel as many question marks when we're talking about a specific series or or how, how things could play out. I mean, most of the time, back on your podcast when we used to do it all the time, it's just like, yeah, like I could be wrong about this series, but like probably not, you know, right. it would like something. This, it's like, I don't know. Like we just went through the West with the Jazz and that Clippers and Mavs, and we don't, I don't, we don't know who's going to come out of that. Like right. we, we don't know who's going to now that Phoenix won today. Like And AD got hurt, right? I mean, yeah, it, it's – I guess it makes a lot of the analysis harder, but it just the, the viewing experience and and kind of the you talk about the take two weeks off and just think about it. the thinking about stuff of it is so fun. I mean, I'm sure you've been doing the same thing with your basketball friends too, where it's like, you know, just texting back and forth, like, oh, is Brooke Lopez going to be able to even stay on the floor against the Nets, or is this and that? And there's there's just all of these question marks about all of these really good teams that we're going to have to see it actually play out in a game or two once the series starts to be able to learn kind of what direction things are pointing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like the one thing I was sure of coming in this playoffs was that the Heat had nothing for the Bucks. I mean, I, I was like, that's they have nothing for the Bucks. But then that might make you think, well, Glenn's really high in the Bucks. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> you know? see, it's just weird. It's just all weird. <laughs> yeah, and then like in the West, it's like, I saw Lakers Suns as like a 50-50 series, mostly because I thought 
they were catching the Lakers, you know, fortuitously early before LeBron and AD kind of got in the, you know, real game shape. Um, and then CP got hurt and then he looked good today and then AD got hurt. And I don't know what it, it's like. Is, I think that's maybe back to a 50-50 series. I mean, you always have to put the LeBron factor kind of in there that he right. always tends to figure it out. But, you know, that's there. I think Clippers, Mavericks, despite how, you know, horrible I think the Mavs defense is, the Clippers could beat themselves, basically, and, and open the door. <laughs> and if they open the door at all, Yannick could get his foot in there and be like, I'm here, and I, you know, I am now on this right. series. And, you know, so we talk about, like, who's coming out of the East. Like, I'm way more perplexed in the West. I, like, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if, like, one of – maybe five different teams, you know, I, I, let's see mm-hmm. Lakers Clippers, uh, you know, Suns don't shock me. Utah doesn't completely shock me. I guess that's where I wrap up. I mean, I don't, I don't think Portland has like the, the juice, but how many times have we been able to say that? No, I mean, ever. It, was, it, it, it took the Warriors becoming this basically. Yeah, that's true. You, you know, I think for us to kind of get there and then for LeBron to be at a team that's where last year they did so much damage through their, you know, their basically their lob threat centers, Dwight and Javel, you know, et cetera. And they punted on all that this year for some stupid reason. And <laughs> they don't have enough shooting at this. You know, it's like, are we just trying to make LeBron's, you know, or is LeBron in a video game where we're just turning up the, you know, the difficulty, you know, settings so harder and harder. So, man, it's, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I'm kind of fortunate that no one's asked me, Glenn, who's your pick to come out of the West? Because I honestly just really don't know how a couple would answer, except to say, well, if I don't know, I guess I'm going to trust LeBron to figure it out. And that's the best I got. <laughs> <laughs> that's that what makes it a blast, man. Well, we'll, sure. we'll, uh, we'll have to come back and see how stupid all of our thoughts here sound a couple weeks from now. Maybe we'll talk again once the Hawks and Sixers are squared up in, uh, in the second round, which that I knew. When will that series start? Like a week? It depends on when it ends. I think there's some expectation that game one could be on Sunday a week from today. Okay. Okay. Well, anyways, he is Glenn Willis. Glenn, thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it. Took more of your time than than I thought I would, but it's always fun to just – you're one of the smartest basketball people I know, and it's fun to just, you know, chop it up and, and, and go through these series. It's it's I'm having a blast watching every one of these series every night, and – it's honestly, I just feel like I'm on overload, just mainstreaming, mainlining uh, NBA playoff basketball into my veins. But it's been, you know, it's it's been a blast. And so thank you for doing it. You guys can all, uh, you can follow Glenn on Twitter at Willis underscore Glenn. It'll be in the show notes and everything there. Um, he's always posting a bunch of Hawks stuff, Hawks videos and all that sort of thing. I feel like I learn, I learn stuff from your Twitter. So thanks for that, Glenn. And I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, much appreciated too. And if and when, if and when the Hawks do lose, <laughs> the Hawks don't win the championship. Um, I will increasingly put more content, like technical content, out about the you know semifinal, conference semifinals, and finals and stuff. So, if you like, just don't feel like doing Hawks content for whatever crazy reason, um, <laughs> more more variety is very likely on its way. And thanks for having me, Dane. Appreciate all the kind words and for you having me on. Yes, sir. Um, I will be back. Uh... In a few days with Britt, we'll chop up some more of the series. I'm going to have Jack Borman on. We're going to kind of look at the playoffs through a Timberwolves lens, kind of like Glenn and I were doing with John Collins. So, again, this is kind of the new sort of cadence of uh, of the podcast with the Timberwolves season over. We're, we're, we're looking at things through a playoff lens. I appreciate you sticking with the pod. Again, thanks to Glenn Willis for coming on. I will talk to you next week. Peace out. How I'm feeling, man, I hope it never stop, yeah. Green and hot so you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah, don't
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.